welcome, welcome, welcome everyone to this week's episode of New Perspectives. I'm your host, Max Huber, and on this episode, Ariana and I chat with Stephanie Louise, one of the NUPR magazine editors, about her recent piece on the American healthcare system titled The Redistribution of Health, a conservative perspective on healthcare. We take a look at Stephanie's perspective on healthcare in America, including some of the issues and challenges of the current system, as well as why she is opposed to a single-payer healthcare system like Medicare for All. We also discuss the role of conservatism and conservative perspectives at Northeastern and in the national discussions of public policy. Additionally, Stephanie also joins us for a new segment called Class Struggle, hosted by Ariana Bennett, where guests tell us about one of their favorite classes at Northeastern and why they think other people should take it. As always, I recommend reading Stephanie's piece for yourself It's available on NUPoliticalReview.com in the National section. And without further ado, let's get into the show. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of New Perspectives. On this week's episode, we're very excited to introduce one of our new podcast producers, Ariana Bennett, to the show. Hi, Max. Thank you so much. I'm excited to join the team. Yep, Ariana is a recent addition, as well as our other producer, Brian Grady. So we're very excited to be expanding the New Perspectives team this fall. And our guest this week is one of the magazine editors at NUPR, Stephanie Louise. Stephanie, if you could introduce yourself. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, So my name is Stephanie Louise. Um, My pronouns are she, her, hers. Um, I'm majoring in political science and economics at Northeastern. And I am a magazine editor at Newper. Fantastic. Well, we're super excited to have you on the show, and we're super excited to talk about one of your recent articles for the the review, which is called The Redistribution of Health, A Conservative Perspective on Healthcare. And for everyone listening, I highly recommend checking out the piece and reading it for yourself at nupoliticalreview.com. It's available in the national section. Now, Stephanie, if you could, could you give us a little bit of a summary about what this piece is and what your main argument is in the piece? So throughout the article, I'm essentially constructing an argument against Medicare for all and single payer health care systems, particularly as it pertains to the United States. I don't touch on international variations of um, a single payer health system and essentially My argument is that Medicare systemically undervalues healthcare costs and therefore cannot be applied to the entirety of the healthcare system in the way that a lot of Medicare for All advocates argue that it can. I also argue that the true cost of a single payer healthcare system in the United States is medical innovation, especially because our healthcare system fosters innovation so well because of our free market and because of the gains that we can get if we are innovative. It's really essential that we maintain this innovation process that then allows other countries to use our medical innovation for without paying the price of having a private healthcare system. Yeah, and it's it's definitely a different kind of argument and a different perspective than I think a lot of us has have been seeing on this issue, especially in 
the 2020 presidential campaigns. Back in the primaries on the Democratic side, you had Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and a lot of progressive candidates really advocating for a Medicare for all or single payer type system. And then you have more moderate wings of the party like Joe Biden, who have, as we know, was part of the Obama administration that really expanded Medicare and Medicaid. And so before we get into that argument in a little bit more detail, could you give our listeners just a quick summary of what Medicare and Medicaid are, what, why they're different, and how they came to be? Yeah, I can definitely do that. So Medicaid is a federal state partnership that essentially covers non-elderly adults with an income of up to 138% of the federal poverty level. So it covers a substantial portion of Americans who are low income. In contrast, Medicare is an exclusively federal program that covers people with disabilities, dialysis patients, and those older than 65, regardless of their income. And how we got here is very, very long, complicated process, but it kind of began during the progressive era. And since, state-sponsored healthcare has been growing progressively, um, especially because of the ACA led by the Obama administration, which is the Affordable Care Act which was based on 2006 reform by Republican Governor Mitt Romney. So ever since that, um, federal health care spending has increased and federal health care as a whole concept has really become popularized. Definitely, that was something I got from your article is that you were trying to kind of bring to the forefront that there are a lot of costs associated with the current system, as well as a proposed single payer system that you don't think are being appropriately reckoned with and taken into account when we're making as a public and as private consumers these decisions. And one way that I think you kind of reflected that in an interesting way in kind of your solutions to this issue is that you emphasize transparency in pricing and costs when it comes to healthcare. Could you just give us a little bit of your your argument for transparency? So I think that the key element that is missing in healthcare right now really is transparency. Because insurance companies and hospitals have done such a good job of covering up cost consumers, consumers aren't price shopping in the way that they do everything else. For example, like if your peanut butter is raised a dollar, you're just going to buy a different brand of peanut butter. But because we don't have that clear of an indication of how expensive our healthcare costs are, it's harder for people to price shop, which results in healthcare spending ballooning. So the increase in transparency would really emphasize allowing consumers to make informed decisions, because in order to have a competitive market, you need to have informed consumers. So that's a really essential reform to make um, if we're going to move in the direction of any kind of free market reform and free market healthcare. I think it's definitely important that transparency is a part of the healthcare system. And I get my question, I guess, is what does transparency in a healthcare system look like? Because with an example like peanut butter, it's very easy for me as a consumer to understand. But healthcare, it's a much more complicated good that plays into so many things. So I guess I'm, what does transparency in healthcare look like to a consumer? So I think that 
First and foremost, reforms need to ensure that providers improving value are being sufficiently rewarded with market share. And that comes down to reforms like that of President Trump recently, which was a price transparency rule, which required hospitals to disclose confidential rates that they negotiate with insurance companies to help the patient understand their out-of-pocket expenses. So reforms like that, that makes it more clear to the consumer what spending is happening and how much the healthcare system as a whole costs. And if you make it more transparent to the consumer what these costs are, they're going to be more willing to price shop and to hop around between insurance companies because that inherently increases competition. Something else that struck me as I was reading your article that kind of connected some dots with what I'm generally familiar with regarding the American healthcare system is that a lot of people's healthcare is tied to their employer, which on one hand, it does make sense that when you group people together, they increase their buying power and their market power to get a, a more amenable rate and healthcare plan for them. But on the other hand, when your healthcare is tied to your job, that seems like it would make it a little bit more inflexible for a consumer to, to effectively shop around for a plan that would work for them. Is that something that you've thought about as well? It's not something that's included in my article, though it definitely is a concern. Of course, any system that prevents consumers from price shopping is concerning. But I think that it's important to note the prime reason that we have employer healthcare, as you said, it is so that consumers can negotiate their rates and have lower premiums across the board because the insurance company knows that there's a certain number of employees that are going to be signing on to their plan. So I think that it is the job of the employer to make sure that employees have good options. That said, that definitely is a concern and something that we should be considering. I don't have all the solutions to employer healthcare issues, of course. I do believe that we need to create a system that genuinely considers how consumers are going to be impacted by their healthcare decisions. And I think that there are definitely reforms to be made within the employer system to achieve that. I see. So you're kind of taking a a nuanced, cautious approach since there, I mean, as you rightly point out, there are, there are benefits to an employer based healthcare system, even though that in its current state or in some of the possible iterations it could take, there might be issues with it that clash with this, the goal of creating a free market, very, a price shopping capability within the market. And you're, I, I appreciate the caution and the, that you're approaching the subject with, which I think is very characteristic of your entire approach to the healthcare issue, which is not to commit to something so hard and then be unwavering at the, the actual costs and benefits from it, but to really take those into consideration when we're trying to answer the question, how can we get people, how can we get the most people to have access to good healthcare? And while you're advocating a market position, there's been a lot of conversation about a single payer government provided healthcare system. And the the patron saint of universal healthcare, I would say in American politics is Bernie Sanders, who is, he's a politician of national fame, of course, and he has made two almost successful runs for the Democratic nomination for presidency 
with Medicare for All being one of his central, the central parts to his platform. And I know as I was reading your article, you bring up something that, that Bernie has cited, which is that a Medicare for All government single payer system would create $450 billion in savings on the healthcare system. And you, you take issue with this number. And I was wondering if you could explain where you see the issues with this this number and this claim. So, of course, Senator Sanders is a very like revered senator for all of his social policies. But I do think that this 2020 Yale study that he cites frequently to back up his Medicare for all argument is inherently flawed. And the reason for that is because the Medicare system systemically undervalues costs. So, for example, it's estimated that private payers compensate hospitals between 189 to 241% more than Medicare rates. And there is evidence that hospitals overcharge, but it's normally because of cost shifting to make up for low government reimbursement rates. So essentially, those not on Medicare are helping to cover the costs of the low government reimbursement rates. There's also evidence that hospitals experiencing reimbursement cuts from the government will also negotiate average higher payments from private payers, which just supports the conclusion that there is cost shifting happening. Stephanie, you mentioned cost shifting. Can you please explain just how that impacts those shopping for healthcare for our listeners who might not be familiar? So the idea of cost shifting is that because the government pays hospitals and medical providers less than the private industry, um, or less than the market value, really. Essentially, consumers that are using private insurance then have to pay more to offset those costs. So it's a term called cost shifting because the medical industry still needs the same amount of money to operate. But since the government's not paying for their care fully, that goes on to private consumers. In addition to your argument about costs being shifted onto private healthcare consumers who are in in effect subsidizing public health insurance. You also think that there's this unaccounted for cost of innovation in the healthcare system. In your article, you kind of position it as this kind of American element that you think is, is a relevant distinction between us and say a Swedish model or the, the UK's national health service model. Could you explain what you mean by the cost of innovation and how that should factor into our concerns? Absolutely. So while the U.S. does rank 15th in healthcare overall, it is um, a leader in medical innovation. Not only have we produced the most medical and biotechnological patents, we are also a leader in pharmaceutical development. And that is because of our free market. We have a system in which When individuals invest time and resources into developing a product, they get really good rewards. So we incentivize innovation more than other countries that don't have similar rewards. And then other countries are able to use the innovations that we produce and benefit from that. So essentially, we are bankrolling pharmaceutical and technological development for a bunch of countries, which I don't see a problem with. But that does result in us having higher costs because we're the ones paying for it. We can't have a single payer system and maintain the same amount of innovation because there's less reward for 
the individuals who would be producing those goods. So Stephanie, you mentioned us having higher costs due to our innovation. Would you say that that innovation is fair to consumers who may not have health care or cannot afford medicine? That's a really fair question. I think that it's a conflict between who is going to have medicine, right? Because if we're not developing these new medications and making them more affordable and more accessible, because that is what's happening in the United States, there are a lot of people that are going to die from that. That said, it does result in higher healthcare costs, and then there are people who don't have healthcare who struggle from that. So I think it's more of a question of short-term or long-term gains. Do we want to ensure that in the short term people have healthcare so less people are struggling because of that? Or do we prefer having great innovation and great development that allows for healthcare to become more affordable, more accessible, and more reliable in the long term and have that impact extend to other countries, especially like lower income countries where medicines in the United States have saved many, many millions of lives. So It's a trade-off for sure, as everything is in economics. But I think that it is essential for us to maintain the amount of innovation that we have to ensure that in the long term, we are having better lives. Because life expectancy is only increasing, the technology that we have access to is only increasing, and that comes with costs, yes. But we're getting something back for those costs, whereas if we just yield and get rid of the innovation, then we're stagnating as a society. So in terms of balancing short-term gains and long-term gains, as you mentioned, do you think that reforms uh, within the system in the United States should focus on increasing our long-term gains, increasing our short-term gains, or do you think that we currently have established a good middle ground in our healthcare system? I don't think anyone feels like we established a good middle ground. I feel like no one's happy with it. And no matter what side of the aisle you're on, you're unsatisfied with the way that it currently works. Because there's too much intervention from the government to be truly free market and to truly allow for all of the innovation to go forth. And there's not enough government intervention for everyone to have healthcare. Though, whether everyone would have healthcare with market intervention is also debatable. It's a conversation for another time. I think that, in my opinion, artificially simulating demand for healthcare is not the solution to our problem. Everyone wants healthcare, but it doesn't become more affordable if the government decides to artificially manipulate the cost of insurance for their consumers. I think we have a supply side problem, and our solutions need to focus on ensuring that we are providing more supply of healthcare, so incentivizing insurance companies to provide more healthcare, rather than artificially increasing demand by lowering healthcare costs, even though we're not actually lowering costs, we're just offsetting them onto someone else. Yeah, that's a great point, Stephanie. And I kind of want to shift gears a little bit and talk about kind of the, the way that healthcare is spoken about in the national conversation that, as we speak, is happening in the Supreme Court Amy Coney Barrett hearings, as well as is a perennial question when it comes to the presidency. And that was something I really, 
appreciated reading your piece is that your concern here is the health of Americans. Healthcare is an intermediate good to actually creating health, which is something that is, you know, a key part of human well-being and human flourishing. And we entered this discussion, I think, in fundamental agreement that we want to maximize the health and the well-being of people. And I think we really saw that with your discussion of the costs of innovation, which is that you think that innovation, it's a key part of improving the health of people. And it's kind of a, a burden that you, you characterize as America taking with, with pride and with in an honorable way. And you don't want to lose that if we were to focus on, say, another element of the healthcare system. So kind of on this idea of how, how we talk about healthcare in America, what was it that inspired you or got you really thinking enough about healthcare and health to, to write this piece and to contribute to the discussion in this way? So I think that the real reason I started with healthcare had to do with how contentious of an issue it is especially because I think that there's a fundamental misunderstanding a lot of the times in liberal spaces and vice versa. If you're in a conservative space, I'm sure that's also the case. But a fundamental misunderstanding of the Republican position on healthcare or the conservative position on healthcare. I think it's really easy to assume that if you don't support universal healthcare, you automatically don't care about low-income people, that you automatically do not care about anyone but yourself, and that is just not the case, at least it isn't for me. And I think that I just wanted to, I want to explain why I support private healthcare and why I support these institutions that a lot of people demonize for good reasons and for bad reasons. Um, and I definitely see the critiques and I see the validity in those critiques, but I think that it's important to portray an accurate depiction of what the conservative perspective is on healthcare that's beyond like what's on MSNBC. That was something that I was, I was speaking with some of my friends about recently. And he, one of my friends identifies as a conservative, but he is, he laments the way that conservatism and the Republican party are often, they often portray themselves in a certain light that he, he was like, I wish there could be, he wishes that there could be a well-articulated conservative position that contributes to a policy discussion in contrast to what he sees as this Trumpian position, which while there may be a, a very good conservative perspective in there, is so covered up by a lot of theatrics and the Trump effect of just how he is as this media person. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And I don't think it's limited to the right. I think that becoming a pundit as a politician has become increasingly popular. And everyone is more interested in being the top news story than they are in actually solving problems. Um, of course, not everyone, but many elected officials don't seem to really care about the individual anymore. And that's awful. And I obviously don't support it. But I also think that there is a difference depending on what kind of media you're consuming. I think that depending on where you're getting your news, there are different perspectives that you're going to be exposed to. And that's not to say that one's better than the other, but it is important to experience all of them and get a balanced perspective, especially so, especially because 
I mean, if you're only reading the New York Times, you're going to get a very like singular view of what the Republican Party is. Whereas like if you're only listening to the Ted Cruz, Michael Knowles podcast, you're also going to get a very skewed view of the United States. And I think it's important to balance out both so that you can get a more realistic perspective of both of the parties from their like personal and like grander sides. On that note um, about having skewed views, I was wondering if you could take just a minute or so to talk about echo chambers and how I know being at Northeastern, we've we've heard that term maybe a few times. I wondered if we could get your perspective on that. Honestly, I think it's made me a better debater and a better thinker because my views are always being questioned at Northeastern because it is so inherently liberal. I feel like every time I go into like a Nooper discussion, for example, I'm like ready to fight. Like I'm ready to go. I have my facts down. I have to read more than everyone else if I want to speak because otherwise I will be brutally challenged as I should be. I think that that's healthy. Um, So I do think that it benefits me in a weird way because I'm able to get a deeper understanding of my beliefs and my views. But I don't think it's beneficial to liberal students who just aren't being challenged as often. I think that one of the key ways to develop a nuanced and frankly, like correct perspective is to constantly be challenged in it and to have to improve your rebuttals and your debate style and whatnot. And I think that while I've benefited at being at Northeastern, I don't imagine liberal students get challenged nearly as often. I have also noticed an effect that if if there isn't a good challenge to say one of my views, which are typically more liberal, it's it's hard to, to sharpen them. And it's honestly, it's harder to understand my own views when I'm not forced to really contend with them in that way. And in a kind of going outside just college discussions for the, the broader questions of public policy and for these national societal projects we're trying to do, like improve healthcare and improve health for people, It's important to have a well-articulated conservative, air quotes, position, because if we're trying to figure out the best way to do something, well, we need to really discuss all the ways there are to do something and to find ways to compare and contrast positions to figure out how are we going to achieve these goals that we all think are good, but we need to figure out how we're going to do them because that's actually the hard part. Saying that we want healthcare, everyone to have good healthcare is easy. Doing it is hard, and that's the, that's the challenge that progressives have taken up with Medicare for All. Conservatives like yourself are taking up with a robust private healthcare insurance market, and it's we it's important to consider these perspectives because you know until we do, we don't know what the answer is going to be, and we won't know how to actually help people. Yeah, absolutely, I totally agree with you. And I think that this goes back to remembering that we all have pretty similar goals. We all want to see a more equal, welcoming United States that's better and is improved. And all of these like key characteristics that we all fundamentally agree on, how we get there is a little bit different. But I think that we have to remember that we agree on the fun- fundamental goals for our country And I think that when we forget that, it's easier to get a little aggressive with each other about political views. But um, at the end of the day, we all have similar visions for the goals of the United States, I think. So it's just important to remember that in discourse and really center that in all of our arguments. Fantastic. I think that's a perfect way and a perfect spot to end this week's episode of New Perspectives. I want to thank 
Stephanie Louise for coming on the show this week to talk about her recent article and her views on conservatism. Stephanie, is there anything that you'd like to to send off our listeners with? Um, if you guys are interested in any getting involved in any groups at Northeastern, I recommend the Interdisciplinary Women's Council. Um, it was started in January by myself and a peer of mine, and it's a really amazing group. And if you're interested in gender equality to any capacity, I recommend you hit us up. So We're glad to have you here, and we're also very glad to have Ariana and Brian, our two producers, joining the show this week as well. It was great to have you here. And now for our new segment, Class Struggle, where we compete for your extra electives, hosted by me, Ariana, one of the podcast producers here at New Perspectives. To start, Stephanie, tell us a little bit about your favorite or most impactful class you've taken here at Northeastern. I would say that my favorite class that I've taken at Northeastern is my econometrics class. I took it with Professor Mark Hooker, and it was genuinely incredible. Um, I'm really interested in the intersection between math and economics, so it was really amazing to have the opportunity to take a class devoted to that study, particularly because I took it with such an amazing professor, and um, we just learned so much. Awesome. And then you mentioned the intersection of math. Now, I know you have a math minor. Would you like to elaborate on that just a little bit? Um, I think that the really interesting thing about economics is actually the math behind it, And I think that having a math minor really helps inform my study of economics because it just helps me understand the analysis a little bit better. Um, So I think it's actually a very critical element of my course of study. And I recommend all econ majors minor in math, personally. And then last question, how has your econometrics class informed maybe some future plans or any future projects our listeners should be um, aware of? Econometrics has played a pivotal role in Um, informing my future projects. I'm actually going to be doing an independent study come spring about class disparities within the GRE. So we're going to be using econometric analysis to essentially gauge whether or not there is a class um, division in GRE performance and the bias that there is towards lower income people. And we're super excited to just create a model that analyzes the impact of income on these individuals through both through both your location and through parental education. And that's how we're going to be gauging like wealth. And we're very excited to um, really quantify that. Amazing. That's so exciting. Well, thank you so much, Stephanie. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of New Perspectives. We really enjoyed sitting down with Stephanie Louise to talk about her perspectives on both healthcare and conservatism. It's always great to hear from people with a different perspective than your own, and this discussion with Stephanie has certainly given me a more nuanced understanding of the healthcare system in America, as well as with conservatism in general. Additionally, we hope that you enjoyed the first installment of Class Struggle with Ariana Bennett as well as her participation in the discussion with Stephanie. As the New Perspectives team grows, we're excited to bring new voices and new ideas to you so that we can make the show the best it can be. I also want to thank Brian Grady, our other producer, for his efforts to make this show sound as good as it can. Make sure to check out nupoliticalreview.com for more from Stephanie and all of the other great NUPR writers. Additionally, 
If you're a Northeastern student looking to be a guest on the show, please reach out to us at nuprpodcast at gmail.com. We're always looking for new guests, and we'd love to have you on the show. Thank you so much for listening, and have a great day. Thank you.